We need to talk about gender equality interventions and social justice. This is next. The Fram episode. Starting in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. The Fram episode. The Fram episode. The Fram episode. Well, hello, and thank you for returning. Uh, to listen to that Fram episode, and I hope you enjoyed episode three about wine, West Coast wines, and social justice. Right now, I'm enjoying my one of my favorite wines, uh, rosés, uh, as I am talking with you today about episode four. Episode four: Gender Equality Interventions and Social Justice. I think we should be moving past complaining at this point. Research exists, there's a fish amount of research to exist to identify situations where gender equality interventions need to be implemented. I have to include the definition, so let's get that on the table immediately. The definition of gender equality, of course the context uh, is gender equality interventions uh, in the workplace. So the definition of gender equality, a sense of worth and place nurtured by an organization's environment, a feeling of inclusion and importance. You have feel you have access to career opportunities. You, you are having experiences of equitable and fair work and non-work outcomes, including intrinsic, like family satisfaction and extrinsic, which is like a promotion, benefits. So benefits that are intrinsic, intrinsic and benefits that are extrinsic. This is the definition of gender equality at work. And so this episode will start off by giving you a context for uh, my information about gender equality interventions. And then we'll get into uh, some clips from some experts in in this uh, topic. So to start, the context, gender equality interventions. The current political context has a lot to do, we have to take that into account when I talk about today's uh, interventions. Uh, the um, fact that the current uh, conservative and GOP groups uh, back in the uh, parts of the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s and using those templates uh, to try to gain uh, dominance again in Congress and those efforts towards passing uh, laws that suit them as well as amending and removing laws, striking down laws. It seems to ha have come started from the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, the prominent laws that passed after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, I think we should take into account because I do think that this is a, uh, a grounding uh, element, a part of the context in regards to gender equality interventions and implementing them and what obstacles exist in regards to implementing these interventions. So after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, they we had the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, we had the, and later on, soon after 
in this decade, extension of the Civil Rights Commission Act in 1967. It changed the uh, life date for the commission. We also had the Age Discrimination and Unemployment Act of 1967. Uh, there was also an extension of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, basically focused on discriminatory practices using tests, as well as uh, looking at the Clean Air Act, uh, amend amending it from the 1966, also amend adding in an amend amendment to it in 1970. The Federal Election Campaign Act in 1971 uh, was uh, successfully pushed through. We also had the I think is very important. The Equal Rights Amendment of 1972, the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment of 1972. So when we look at the context for talking about gender equality interventions and even interventions programs, which is what I'll be getting into, I think we have to take into account that um, existing recent efforts in regards to the strike down of Roe v. Wade is very important. Uh, and multiple states changing child labor laws, which I'll go to momentarily, give uh, some information on that. And the Equal Rights Amendment. Just to give you some information about ERA, which is what it's called, the recent update that I have is from April 2022. Let me give you some background information on ERA, Equal Rights Amendment. And it was in 1972 during the 92nd Congress that the House and Senate passed the Resolution 208, which proposed the ERA. In its proposing cause, the Resolution 208 provided that for the ERA to be adopted three-fourths of the states would have to ratify the amendment within seven years from the date of its submission by the Congress. So this meant March 22, 1979, seven years after Resolution 208 was approved. Now, in regards to uh, um, amending the Constitution, Article 5 establishes, pow empowers Congress to propose an amendment when two-thirds of both chambers deem it necessary or on the application of two-thirds of the state legislatures to call a convention for proposing an amendment. A proposed amendment becomes part of the Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the states or by conventions in three-fourths of the states. So following ratification by three-fourths of the states, the archivist of the United States uh, will identify the ratifying states, publish the amendment, and certify that the amendment has become part of the Constitution. What happened in 2020, February 2020, was when Virginia became the 38th state to ratify ERA. And Virginia at that time joined Nevada and Illinois, and they started, they filed a complaint in federal district court seeking relief that would order the archivist of the United States to publish, publish and certify the ERA as part of the Constitution. And this uh, case was called Virginia versus Ferriero. Virginia versus Ferriero. The U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. What happened that w this uh, case was riding and waiting. In 2022, 
new elections in Virginia, a the new governor was a conservative Republican governor. And so he took office January 2022. One month after, he pushed for the Commonwealth of Virginia to file a motion with the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the District of Columbia Circuit to withdraw Virginia from the lawsuit challenging the archivist of the United States uh, who was refusing to publish and certify the Equal Rights Amendment because of the deadline that never was changed. At this time in February 2022, Virginia drops out uh, and leaves Illinois and Nevada left to uh, in this lawsuit challenging the archivist. So that's the most uh, recent update we have. And this, this D.C. Circuit Court granted Virginia's request to withdraw from the case. And there you have it, I think, is a pivotal moment in regards to gender equality uh, that was very damaging. Also, we have the strike down of Roe v. Wade, which happened. And that was several years coming where you saw cases coming and challenging aspects of it, elements of it, states challenging, challenging until... It hit a point where it was the conservative uh, group with power. It's they basically uh, we have no more Roe v. Wade. Now we have also the fact that there are child labor laws, child labor laws that are being challenged and changed. Washington Post had a, a uh, April twenty third, twenty twenty three article called the the conservative campaign to rewrite child labor laws. And it focuses on uh, investigating what's going on here, uh, which I think is another key point of concern here in regards to gender equality. There is a organization called, an organization called the Foundation for Government Accountability. It's a think tank. And they seem to be highly involved in leading the way in drafting state legislation to strip child workplace protections. In this Washington Post article, it focuses on the uh, trying to damage and fracture the law, the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 that Congress passed that stopped companies from using cheap child labor to do dangerous work. And this was uh, basically what was happening during the Great Depression, an explosion of need of labor, and they were using children. Now, most recently... This article talks about the Labor Department has seen about a, a 69% increase in minors employed in violation of federal law since 2018. And uh, it also, between 2018 and 2022, this article says federal regulators opened cases for 4, 000, over 4,100 ch child labor violations covering over 15,000 youth workers. And this is federal data. What seems to be happening is... Uh, this conservative group, this think tank, and groups that are supporting it, they have these youth hiring or employment bills, which is what they're titled. Uh, they represent a growing momentum among conservatives who contend that parents and not government policy should determine whether and where 14 or 15-year-olds should work. What also is uh, was brought up in the article are that child welfare advocates are highlighting that some business leaders say that the new legislation could endanger children on the job and entice others to leave school to join the workforce, thereby damaging education. 
This also focuses in on now that those risks are also a concern for undocumented minors who are have been arriving in the United States without their parents uh, recently in the last few years. Close to about 15%, this article says, of those children are released from fed federal custody to distant relatives or non-relative sponsors. Uh, and so this makes them more vulnerable to labor trafficking because they need, obviously, they are another mouth to feed if that's what their relatives see, which is the case, and there needs to be more money brought in and they become vulnerable uh, in that type of stressful situation where they feel they need to contribute. So another highlight about the discourse from this conservative uh, group is that there was a January 2022 white paper. Um, it had talking points uh, that the legislation uh, legislators were using. The paper called teenagers a critical source of labor, in quotation marks, a critical source of labor. And obviously this discourse was linked to the conservative backlash to pandemic era education policies to alleged overreach by school officials charged with protecting children in the workforce. Now, I, I have to also add that this continued element of this uh, conservative discourse about parents' rights does directly extend to the ban of books in schools. So we're not, I'm not going to go into detail about that, but yes, that is also a, a an element of this conservative group and is connected to that discourse of parents' rights. And um, that should also be a red flag for you as well, that they are connected. Now, my main concern is that the three of these alone, and there are other incidences, but just the fact that you see that these are prominent in the news. So it's easy for you to see a connection here between uh, the 2022 um, ERA, it was not, uh, the Virginia basically dropped out. And then you have the strike down of Roe v. Wade. And now you have child labor laws being changed. These are part of the context when I'm talking about gender equality interventions. And so with today's episode on gender equality interventions and social justice, this information is going to be, this this information needs to be taken in this context because it is, and it has to be seen as barriers. This context is being barriers to be able to employ uh, interventions successfully. The social justice aspect of this episode will focus on the use of gender equality interventions in a strategic manner, as if in a program or even developing a program to work as a protection for women and men who support this in the workplace. And so the focus on my my idea with this episode is to highlight the the need to develop and use a type of gender equality intervention program that works as a stand your ground de facto policy against the current political uh, context and the current social context going on with such policies and laws being amended, changed, and uh, removed. So I'm going to cut it off at that and leave you with that context. And I'm going to start into talking about an actual idea for specific types of uh, interventions, but how they can become a program. And I'm also going to start with a few, uh, with some clips to give you some more uh, background information into what 
uh, my idea is in regards to developing a program. Well, I'm going to continue here with a short clip to jump us into the focus uh, of our, t- uh, our gender equality intervention uh, area. And um, it is the case that we, I have been just talking about the fact that conservative GOP groups uh, are trying to make changes uh, uh, that are not very uh, good changes in regards to gender equality. And so so we would focus on some information about the fact that, you know what, as women in the workplace, it is in our best interest to get men involved. Find a group of men who want to be supportive and who want to get involved and maybe just don't know how. You have this effect of talking and talking and men going, wah, 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 I don't hear what you, uh, whatever. And so this clip, I think, is a wonderful start into uh, a talk about gender equality interventions. This is from INSEED. It's a business school of the world. This is a 2019 video interview of a few professors from the School of Management from Rice University. And so I think this was really important uh, start to the information I want to share with you. Women um, were not effective at persuading men when it came to gender-related issues. We call it the peanuts effect, the cartoon. And that is when men hear women talking about gender issues, what they really hear is wah, 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 wah. And so what we found is if we really want to influence men, what we need to do is engage men in talking about gender-related issues. So male allies, not surprisingly, they're the power holders of society. We need to include them and we need to make sure we're utilizing them. You talk about interpersonal discrimination as being something subtle but very important uh, in shaping people's lives and outcomes. What, what is it about that that's so important? Yeah, so when we think about discrimination now, I think we can easily put discrimination into just two easy piles. One is the overt discrimination. I don't like you because you're a woman. I can't believe that we're going to hire another woman. Oh, it's a woman again. So it's this very overt, I know you don't like me because I'm a woman. To some extent, uh, we're used to that. We know what to do with that. It's called sexism. It's a problem outside of me. It's really about you. When we deal with interpersonal discrimination, we deal with an entirely different entity. It's you maybe engaging in behaviors that aren't, that aren't certain for me that it's discrimination. So maybe you don't smile at me as much. Maybe you turn your body position away from me. Maybe you try to cut me off. I, we call it things like incivilities or microtransgressions. And the reason that these are more problematic is they leave me wondering, is it you? Are you a jerk? Is there something you don't like about me? Is this me? Is this because I'm a woman? And to the extent that people are engaged in that metacognitive activity, our research shows that it decreases their performance. So it's actually problematic. It's more problematic. I also tell people um, from the Uh, victim from the women's side, if you are experiencing what you think may be subtle discrimination, what I say is, let's just make it into overt. Let's pretend, let's label it overt discrimination and move on. And here's why. Because 
when we take it outside of ourselves and say we think it's this, we may be wrong, but at least it stops our engine from expending energy toward it, and we can move on and do good performance. What about you know those who may be privy to uh, interpersonal discrimination, but not necessarily committing it themselves? In our own research, what we see is that if an ally speaks up and condones or condemns discrimination, it has an impact on another individual, okay, on the participants of research who are the naive participants. It does have an impact. It spreads over and they do adopt that condemning or condoning. What's important is even when we do that and see it short term, when we look at a follow-up and see does that one interaction with an ally have a long-term effect, we find it does indeed. So you can be influenced from an ally standing up and condemning discrimination, not only in the short term, but also six months later. So I have to add, which you know, this is now becoming a common pattern in uh, in my podcast, in each of my episodes. I have to add my experiences uh, in to the mix, just so you get an idea and you recognize that not only I understand, uh, but I recognize uh, and I try to figure out solutions. And so in regards to what I've experienced uh, as a female from the time a young uh, being told in schools that maybe you should try to be better at art when I really wanted to try to be better at math or as well in high, as well as in high school. And so also in college, when I was getting my degrees, uh, my undergrad and my master's being told, well, you want to start at, start out at, at the bottom in your internships and hopefully you'll rise. Whereas I see, and I had, I had seen male counterparts in the same situation get instantly put in. So for my master's, when I was uh, working in production as a production assistant, master's, males getting actually higher up. So also include situations in grad school uh, as well, where I was told that I I think you need to hold back. You're taking on too much in regards to learning research methods, in regards to taking on proje- research projects where I full well knew what I could handle. Uh, and even female professors talking to me in a manner of saying that I need to not question and act like a female and be passive aggressive, which I'm not going to go into detail. This happened at ASU, a female professor. I was doing my due diligence as a student trying to learn and questioning the research in order to figure out where I wanted to go. When I questioned her, some of her research, female professor decided that this is not uh, something a female should be doing. You're acting in an unfemale way is the message I got across the board. Or the other incident later on after I had graduated and wanted to, uh, was trying to get a job at the University of Wyoming where my spouse was also uh, interviewing getting a job. And once I uh, got there and I was only able to get a lecturer position, which there's a lot going on there that I won't talk about in regards to discrimination. But 
told by a chair at the education department when they opened up an assistant, a tenure track assistant professor position in education. And I was perfect for it. Perfect. Had the everything that was needed there and met up with this person to discuss and say, hey, I'm really excited. I would, I'm going to apply for this position, but I want to talk with you. And, and I was told, cut off and told that uh, by this chair, I'm not going to even consider you for the job because there's too many women in education. So you're wasting your time. This also leads into other experiences I've had working in the government, federal government and Department of Commerce, uh, male employees being uh, discriminating against me and other women that I saw uh, witnessed it. And then on top of that, seeing women cower and hide and say, I'm going to take the the abuse, uh, uh, and I'm going to just, you know, back this guy up. Uh, and so it was a complex situation, uh, growing up and then going into being an adult and realizing that this is just an ongoing situation and will it ever end? No, it doesn't end. But there were moments where I saw males who supported me and gave me insight and Gave me opportunities uh, that I needed, uh, including, you know, my advisor my for my doctoral program, who I'm for, forever grateful for. Uh, I'll just say his name is Eric. I'm not going to say any more. Uh, but I, to this day, I'm very grateful for what he has done, as well as other professors who did see that there was a problem and did stand up for me. And people in the workplace, when I worked for the federal government, did see that there was a problem and did whatever they could to stand up for me, but realized it was just overwhelming, the, the, the corruption and the problems that were going on. But I will stop from there. So while talking about the interventions and giving a lot of examples, uh, there, there are a number of resources available that people can access to get this information. I'm gonna play a clip from the Total Picture podcast with host Peter Clayton. And it includes the uh, guests, David Smith and Brad Johnson, authors of Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. They offer also a lot of good suggestions for intervention ideas. Uh, And I would like to wrap those in with the ideas that I'm gonna present from a few research articles to develop a program. So let's uh, pause here and let me get this clip going. The really high potential talent that's coming in the front door there for women and that men have to be engaged in doing this work. Otherwise, it just, it just was not going to happen. And so that's where, we, that's where we got our start. And it was really interesting that um, as the book came out in 2016, a year later, Brad and I were busy talking about the book and, and doing workshops with organizations, and uh, Me Too went widespread around the around the world, and really had a profound effect on the work that we were doing. And it really found we found ourselves being pulled more into these conversations about not just the the narrow area of mentoring and sponsoring that often we find around more senior people, but really the the broader aspect of how do men just show up every day in the workplace as allies. What did that look like? And what was good allyship? And how did women consider that and see that? Um, 
So from there, I'll, I'll let Brad tell you a little bit more about it. Yeah, so Peter, it may not shock you to know that when Dave and I got started, uh, you know, with our idea for Athena Rising, we would share, we were excited, right? We would share this idea with colleagues. And they would say, um, you realize you're two dudes, right? And you're going to write a book about women. Is that a good idea? And we really got it. We really understood that. And, and, and so I think it's really important for listeners to understand our methodology. So Dave and I, as behavioral and social scientists, went out and gathered all the data we could find, all the research on what great cross-gender mentoring and allyship look like. So we began with the evidence, and then we went out and did our own large qualitative studies. So we, in the case of Athena Rising, interviewed lots and lots of women, asking them, hey, what has a male mentor looked like for you in terms of something that was really effective? Almost every woman we interviewed had had at least one male mentor along the way. And so they gave us the behavioral illustrations. What did it look like in real-time practice? And we, we compiled all of those to really sort of develop our, uh, you know, sort of guide for men on, on how to do this work more effectively. We use the same methodology for Good Guys, our most recent book, but we asked women in that case, what has it looked like when men really show up as allies, as advocates, as uh, co-conspirators to make the workplace more fair? And, and again, we put all that together as sort of the, the tool kit for dudes on, on how to show up and be more effective as allies uh, with their female colleagues. According to the women you spoke to, what traits define their male co-workers as allies, and are there any traits that seem to be consistent across the board? You know, when we were doing the research for good guys and learning uh, about the experiences of women in the workplace, the thing that really uh, occurred to us after you know just a couple of months of doing the interviews, Peter, was that there were two large categories of things that women said really mattered. And number one was the interpersonal. Dave and I kind of framed this as how do you show up interpersonally as an ally with your female colleagues? And I'll cover a few of the best practices there. The other big category, though, was the public systemic allyship, where men really have to illustrate allyship in their behavior and holding other people, not just themselves, accountable. So on the interpersonal plane, a couple of the biggies that came to mind, and I think the first one really surprised Dave and I, both with Athena Rising and with Good Guys, it was, guys, could you learn to listen more effectively? So apparently we men are not so good at that, right? We a female colleague or a mentee comes to us and we immediately want to solve a problem for her or fix things. And women told us in the interviews, no, really, could you just listen? Sometimes I just need a sounding board. Um, I need you to sort of uh, offer a listening ear and to do that generously, you know, without the intent to fix something or solve something. Just kind of be in my corner. Could you avoid assumptions, right? As an ally, can you not assume what I'll want or I'll not want in my career because I happen to be a woman. Get to know me, ask the right questions, do the discernment, find out what my career dream looks like, not what your dream for me looks like. You know, So that humility, the discernment, the listening, and one last one I'll add, just sort of on the relational plane, if you're a guy who's mentoring a woman, you cannot forget the sponsorship, right? You have to sponsor her loudly. We had so many stories from women, uh, you know, and the data shows that women get far less sponsoring than men. 
And we had so many women say it made all the difference when he, when I, I could count on him to always have his ear open for those next opportunities. And he would put my name in, right? He would mention me. He'd say, you know, you should consider for this uh, so-and-so, maybe Sarah. She's a rock star, and I, I really see her as a great candidate for this. The sponsorship has got to be deliberate, and men have to get more comfortable with that. But, but Dave, some public stuff. Yeah, you know, one of the things that came out of that interpersonal also was the humility piece, the fact that, you know, I maybe I don't have all the answers, and I, and I do have to begin to think a little bit about having this learning orientation and developing an awareness of how other people experience the workplace different from myself. And, and that really came out loud and clear on the public side of this, because men, as they would tell us about how they developed an awareness of some of the very maybe unique things that women experience that they had not experienced in the workplace, then they, they said, ah, now I see the problem. Now I can fix it. And this is part of the challenge, right, is in allyship is we have to be able to see the problem, you know, developing an awareness of what it is, and then we can actually do something about it. And so great example I would tell you from the interviews that Brad and I had uh, for both books was women telling us over and over again that in, you know, in meetings they would, they would contribute to the team, they'd have an idea, they put it out on the table, and, and everybody would be just kind of like, oh, okay, whatever. And then three dudes later, he'd repackage the idea that she just put out there as his own and take credit for it. And now it's the greatest idea ever, right? It's like, wow, Brad, how'd you come up with that? That was incredible, you know? And it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, how is that any different than what she just said? But I remember when Brad and I were hearing these conversations in the interviews with women, they were relating these stories to us that I would just shake my head. I'm like, I have never had that happen to me never personally had that happen to me. And I asked Brad the same question. You ever had that happen? No. Um, and so here's something that if you're not aware of it happening, how can you ever fix it, right? So now I have an awareness of it. Now I'm looking for it. So when I see it happen, now I can choose to do how I'm going to actually publicly confront at that point. And for women, you know, they, they related all of these experiences and they're well documented in the research as well. They're also, they don't get as much time, right, as much airtime to, to voice their ideas and, and their contributions are interrupted three times as much as men uh, are. And that happens all the way up to the most senior parts of organizations. So, so the research that I'm going to be using uh, to talk with you about interventions today, I, I found the two recent articles from 2022, a few from 2023, uh, the two that I am going to focus on in episode four today includes a, a very uh, informative list of intervention of tactics, uh, interventions uh, in general. And so one of the articles is uh, by Vent uh, Fort Deepavine. It's a 2022 article titled Organizational Interventions Towards Achieving Gender Equality at the Corporate Top, a Multiple Case Study Approach. And this is in the Journal of uh, Equality, Diversity, and Inclusion, an international journal. And another article that I am going to be uh, talking about and getting examples from is by uh, Lau, Scott, Warren, and Bly. Uh, it is the title, Moving from, prob moving from Problems to Solutions, a Review of Gender Equality Interventions at Work Using an Ecological Systems Approach. And this is included in the Journal of Organizational Behavior uh, in the beginning of 2023. 
And so just for your reference, uh, if you want to pull them up and Google them to get more details, I would suggest you reading these two articles. We have the Lao et al. article and the Fort Deepavane article giving a lot of good examples, and I'm going to share them with you. Hopefully, you can come up with a package program uh, that is a gender equality intervention program uh, that works alongside your DEI program, uh, or it is uh, your uh, DEI program. In regards to personal level interventions, uh, there are, I'm going to talk a little bit slower because there's a lot of information. Personal level interventions. Well, let's get started. You could promote more women in leadership roles, include more negotiating tasks in positions where women commonly are hired, eliminate uh, through policies the old boys club, implement job interview questions that include prevention-focused and promotion-focused questions for all candidates, not just one or the other, balance out the hiring pool for more masculine and more feminine positions in quotation marks, use a balance of super use a balance of supervisory and self-evaluations that fairly require all employees to ask for feedback that focuses on behaviors without prejudice. When you get into the interpersonal level interventions, companies, organizations can, uh, you need to develop mental support. So obviously mentoring opportunities, connecting, uh, that also require, again, a connect with asking for feedback from mentors, mentoring that allows and provides access to resources and contacts for women. And then we also get into interpersonal level interventions. Everybody knows, and it's been repeated, allyship. You need to make sure you have a grounded allyship uh, situations for women uh, in your organization and company. Establish through policies and practices psychological ownership by men and women of gender equality policies and allyship programs. Incorporate self-affirmation tasks in every team project. Establish informal interactions that focus on appreciation of the efforts of every team member through social events. Managers need to incorporate more informal social events that have attendees switch roles uh, where you could have the men are doing the baking uh, for desserts or the women are you, uh, are, uh, are grilling, doing the barbecuing of the food, making the food on the grill. Uh, sports, switch positions where you have uh, I, a, divi- a diverse selection of games going on. And as we also get into, again, not every one of these examples can be implemented depending on how the size of the company and the organization, but also uh, the extent of what type of support for gender equality interventions exist from the top. And if that is a problem, that obviously needs to be addressed in order for the personal level and the inner personal level interventions to be employed. You get more into also establish multiple work family balance resource programs at the company and organization. And 
when you start looking at uh, what type of personal and interpersonal level interventions to employ, you also already need to have, already need to have organizational level interventions in play. So that's a given. And we get into organizational level interventions. Um, I'm going to go through several, I'm going to go through examples from both articles. So eliminate information ambiguity in all policy, practices, documents, and evaluations uh, for performance. Standardize all processes in the company. Offer child care support, which every uh, adult is uh, supports in a company, an organization. Require all training processes include self-affirmation tasks. And the focus also for managers needs to be on the experiential process. So manager training workshops need to include interactive theater workshops and non-stereotypic association exercises. So it's about making connection and making an understanding, having developing an understanding and an appreciation of your female employees. Increase yearly the representation of women leaders. The organization also needs to be evaluated yearly on their demonstration of commitment towards diversity and should be penalized if it falls behind. Uh, now, yeah, you're asking, oh, okay, organization going to punish itself. Well, again, this has to start at the top. And if it starts at the bottom, there has to be a growing support of employees that are demanding that this happens. And one way to do this would be uh, punish an organization. Well, no bonuses that year. No, no, None of the upper management get bonuses. If the evaluation uh, uh, results from their, uh, their commitment to gender equality uh, falls short, again, evaluation results from uh, this, these evaluation results, uh, they can become marks attached to upper management evaluations for promotion. So these are just a few ways an organization can punish itself. Uh, and I'm sure that you could probably think of more. We get also into organizational level interventions. We look at the need for women's networks and leadership development programs. You also, as a company organization, you should use engagement surveys and exit interviews consistently. The company should establish a culture compass program governed by the perceptions of employees about what culture they want the company uh, aspire to and set values and goals in play. So this is also where you have a situation where if at the top, there's not so much support, uh, but mid-level mid and lower mid-level managers um, developing a culture compass program. Uh, and this gets the employees having the decision-making process in hand to influence uh, management and higher up. And so that's one way uh, definitely to quickly or in a shorter time redirect the culture of a company is having a culture compass program. Also an organization should always use should always use gender neutral terms in all hiring campaigns. They should also incorporate mandatory uh, DEI training for all managers and higher up management. 
Also, companies should use recruitment and selection committees that enforce transparency in hiring. The company uh, must be required, require at least one woman to be on the shortlist for every position. Companies should also delegate a higher percentage of positions, be time and location independent work. Uh, that's why I'm referring to remote work. And also establish strategic workforce and succession planning committees to identify and support women eligible for leadership positions in the future. So there has to be a forethought and planning about how to handle a situation two years, five years, 10 years from now to maintain a percentage in, in the hiring pool to be women. And that's where you get committees involved. Also, the company should require commitment from the top uh, and down. And again, this gets into the use of evaluations. Evaluations are very uh, influ influential, especially if they go in so on someone's record as higher management. Uh, again, also the elimination of bonuses if a company falls short that year. So you have numerous ideas about personal, interpersonal, all the way up to the organizational level, the types of interventions that can be incorporated into a gender equality intervention program for a company, no matter how small or how big. And so this is what I think needs to happen across the United States. Globally, of course, there's companies already out there ahead of the game uh, in other companies in Europe as well as elsewhere who they don't necessarily call it a gender equality intervention program, but they are doing it and they have many of these types of interventions already in play. In order to develop this program, you have to have several people at the top who support the actual development of this program and instating it. And so this is where it begins. You also need to have buy-in from employees, a sufficient number of employees in order to have this program uh, to be developed as well as to get it started and going. And it takes time. Uh, but depending on how quickly you can get the buy-in, uh, how quickly you get these programs up and running. Now, remember I talked earlier about the context that we're dealing with right now. Uh, remember I talked about the political, social, and economic context that are, we are experiencing right now and that this uh, is uh, an obstacle in trying to get th these programs going because you obviously have differings of uh, opinions uh, in regards to employees. And so... It is all about how everyone can benefit if they employ these interventions as a team in order for the company to succeed, the team to succeed, and for the individual employee to be able to succeed within the company. And yes, ultimately, it may be that some employees decide, you know what, I just really don't want to work for this company. I don't agree with these policies. You're going to have that. And that's their choice to go find a job somewhere else. Uh, and But as long as you have the uh, maintained and the consistent support from the top and the mid-level and down, uh, you can keep these programs in play. Equal Rights Amendment Update As of April 27th, the Senate failed to advance a measure to remove the ratification deadline. Well, this has been a longer than usual episode. There's a lot of information that I want you to take into account. But uh, this is a wrap-up on episode four. And hopefully 
uh, as an individual working for a company, you start the conversation at your job, your work, about the need for gender equality interventions, the benefits of it, the need for a program that emphasizes the use of these in- interventions from the personal, interpersonal, all the way up to the organizational level, uh, organizational level, uh, and uh, that way the conversation gets started sooner than later, and these more of these programs uh, are developed and put into play. I hope that you've got all this information. You may have to rewind a little bit and listen a little bit more. Uh, go right ahead. And that's what it, the amazing thing about recorded podcasts are for. And this is a wrap on episode four. I appreciate your interest and support in my podcast, That Fram Episode. Thank you. I wish you well and have a good day. The Fram Episode.